Nehemiah 2, 12 through 18. Then I rose in the night, and I, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gate that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to, on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up into the night by the valley and inspected the wall. I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and it, with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. This is the word of the Lord. I'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. And as they are headed out, some of my friends are going to come and hand you one of these little uh, above and beyond guides. And so if you'll take that in your hand, and if you're multi-talented, also turning to Nehemiah as he will be our focus uh, of our sermon today. I got a little uh, weepy during worship, um, which I know Jason, it's kind of Jason's thing is to get the, the weepy. <laughs> uh It was one of those supernatural moments in New Orleans. Just to see what God is doing. Um, When I was a little kid, my earliest memories of New Orleans were moving there as, I don't know, I must have been three or four years old. Uh, We moved to New Orleans from Hammond to start a church. And uh, next month, that church... uh, in a few months, that church is celebrating 40 years, their 40-year anniversary, a church my dad started called Grace Baptist Church. And um, my parents always uh, loved mission, missions, missionaries, church planting before it was cool. And so to be there, and I don't know if you've been in New Orleans lately, uh, is a pretty dark place. And... Um, Anyway, just being there, seeing the heart of Shane and Stephen and Thomas and Jesse and these other people that are planting was, was overwhelming at what God's doing. Um, <clears throat> I want to look at the brochure real quick. And we're going to spend five minutes on this and then we're going to get into the sermon. Um, but I wanted uh, to walk you through some of this. You know we've been in a series for uh, several weeks now called Above and Beyond. And, um, and this is really our new uh, generosity initiative kind of fleshed out. I've been using some of these phrases. Me and Jason have been talking through and dreaming through what this might look like for several months, 18 months or so. 
Um, and this is the first piece of printed material in your hand on such, uh, such a topic. And uh, the thought of actually building a building is, is a little new for me, to be honest with you. I never thought as Covenant Church that we would build anything. I saw the vision clearly to plant the church here. God spoke very clearly to me. I remember just like it was yesterday. Uh, clearly that we would be a church planting church. Clearly that we would sacrifice so that we could be a rescue ship and not a cruise ship. But as we've grown as a, as a faith family and our need for facilities has grown and the place we're in, the school, although they've been kind to us, it's growing and the space that we're using is becoming less and less available. Uh, and this all kind of changed during COVID. So uh, when COVID started, we got a call from, you know, representative of the school and said, hey, um, this next Sunday will be your last Sunday because we don't feel comfortable you being in there. And I remember thinking, can they do that? I, I, I mean, I guess it's their building. I just didn't think. And that was before I knew the whole world was going to shut down, and everybody did that, you know. Um, but, but at that moment, I began to really kind of think through. I felt in my heart this turning of the season that was coming, and it's here. Now, I want to make this very uh, clear that from the beginning, we've been radically committed to planting churches and investing in the mission well beyond ourselves as a matter of fact, last year, we were able to invest $250,000 over half of our budget into mission endeavors. That's incredible. I mean, seriously. I mean, yeah, we can clap for that. It's like a golf clap turning into something more substantial as we talk. Um, hey, God's not offended by your clapping. I just want you to know that, you know. Scripture says all of heaven rejoices sometimes, so we can rejoice with them. One of the goals from the beginning is that we would be able to give up to 50, uh, up to 50 percent of our budget away. And everyone told me that we were stupid for doing that. Um, and somehow we did it. And, and let me tell you, it's not, it's not the tithe checks I'm writing. Uh, uh, it is a collected effort between all of us. And that is just incredible. It blows my mind. And that's not going to stop. We started looking last year, kind of as we're coming out of COVID, for a place to remodel. And we thought we had found several, but they kept falling through and God kept shutting doors. And I believe that God works through closed doors as much as he does open doors. And we had the opportunity to buy some land. This is just uh, towards the end of 2021. And this is a pretty incredible story. Some of you may have heard some of this. But the owner of that land donated half of its worth to us, nearly half a million dollars just given to us. Uh, in, in, in that piece of property, which was this incredible God thing. And now we're to the point where we want to build a simple facility to facilitate that mission. Now, before we get into this, I want to give us a quick word of caution that the church was never to be an end to itself, but to reach out and bring salvation to the city and to the nations. Covenant Church, that's why we're here. That is certainly not changing. And that has informed our mission over the past 11 years. Now, when it comes to building buildings, as you can see, we're pretty minimalist on buildings. Because God didn't call us to erect some big monument to him in Bossier, we are here to disciple our families, to bless and win our neighbors to the Lord, to train up people, to send them out, to be a rescue ship. That's why we're here. And we're going to continue to do that we're not building a cruise ship for Christians to go hang out in. Quite the opposite of that. And we use this phrase. We want to be an aircraft carrier on which or from which believers are sent out. 
And this new facility will simply be that, a platform from which we send rescue. I was in Dallas a few months ago, and one of my friend's pastors hosted an event for foster kids and families. And I walked on the campus, and there was about four or 500 foster kids and their parents or their guardians, and um, they just held the event to bless these foster parents. And it was incredible to see these kids laughing, kids that have gone through so much trauma. And I thought, man, that's, I, I want Covenant to be that. I want it to be this platform to which we're able to bless and to send rescue from. In the, in the thing, some of this terminology, very familiar to you, um, our wins to grow as a disciple, to grow as family, and to grow as a missionary. Those are the words we use all the time. There's faith steps underneath each one of those. We'll continue to talk about that. On the right side, it's a simple little drawing and our financial goal. This is what we need. Um, combined with a short-term loan from the bank, this is, will enable us to do this. If we raise the 300, we can get a master plan on the spot, some parking and entrance. For 500, we can build a simple facility that we can host worship services in a kid's space. And 800, our miracle goal, we get all that, plus we get a space for some offices and, and some youth space. Uh, if you're visiting with us today and you're like, oh man, it's the money sermon. It's not today. Again, it's coming. I'm not going to tell you when. It's, it's coming, but today's not the day. And if you're visiting with us, I'm not asking you to give. This is an appeal to those who call covenant home, that you would sacrifice together, that you would ask God financially, God, what would you have us give? We'll talk about this for a few more weeks. At the end of March, you're going to give a little financial intent card that we have to have in order to move forward. And I believe wholeheartedly where God guides us, he'll provide. And so uh, I'm just, I'm excited to see what God will do. To be honest, I'm trying to subdue my emotions a little bit because I don't want to manipulate you into giving. Because 2 Corinthians 9 says God loves a cheerful giver. So if you feel manipulated or guilted into this, please don't give. But if you feel the Holy Spirit leading you to do that, that's, that, those are those that uh, we want to partner with. And so I'm just going to ask you to keep praying that prayer over the next month. God, how much would you want me to give? I'm not asking you to do something we're not already doing. Our executive team, the Allens, the Woods, and the East um, have already decided that we're going to give $30,000 combined towards this goal and over our next two-year period. And I want you to pray about what that number might be for you. Now listen, all my cards on the table. When you start praying, God, what would you have me do? His answer to that might not be financial at all. His answer to that, as you start praying, God, what would you have me do? His answer might be, I want you to adopt a kid. I want you to go through the journey. I've got one of your kids, and they're living in Ukraine or Indonesia or somewhere in Asia. And as you pray, that's what God, I really believe that's what God's going to tell you. As you pray, some of you, God's going to call to become Surrender your life to full-time ministry, others to be a missionary overseas somewhere. And, and, that is, and I rejoice with you way more over, over a check written. I want you to hear the voice of God and respond in obedience. And that's what we've been saying. Lord, what would you have me do than risk obeying him? Some of you give the largest financial gift you've ever given. Some of you are going to get baptized. Some of you are going to take a step into community and you've been burned in community and it's the most fearful but it's the most faith step that you could take 
And what I want as, as one of your pastors, I want us to take steps of faith following the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let me pray as we open up God's word. God, I love you. I thank you for your gift of grace. I thank you for these opportunities in front of us. Lord, I pray as we open your word that we would hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're in Nehemiah 1 and 2. I invite you to turn uh, there if you haven't already. And we're still in this above and beyond series, this phrase that uh, we borrowed out of Ephesians 3, that God wants to bless us in in an above and beyond way, far more than we could think or imagine. He's already blessed us with that through Jesus. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 is that we would now understand the fullness of God, right, and this above and beyond God, and then we would live this radically generous lives as above and beyond people. And we get a glimpse of a guy who did that in Nehemiah. Tell you a few things about Nehemiah. Um, this isn't like some old, some old Western. Nehemiah is not the hero of this story. God's the hero. Nehemiah is only as successful as he is yielded to God and listening to the voice of God. We jump in and we see that Nehemiah is a cupbearer for the king. And he is uh, an Israelite who is living in what was Babylonian captivity, now is Persian captivity. And the best and brightest of the Israelite uh, men were used and given positions in uh, the conquering uh, king's court. We see this uh, certainly with Daniel, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and now we're even to Nehemiah. Now, a lot of scholars think that Nehemiah is actually the last of the books. If you read the Bible chronologically, it's the last of the books in the Old Testament before the intertestamental uh, period of 400 years of silence. So here's Nehemiah, and and he's working a job. He's not a priest or a king or a prophet. He's not a paid religious leader. No seminary to speak of, no formal religious training. He's just a dude working his job. And that is such an encouragement to me because the truth is that most people that God uses to extend the kingdom of God throughout Scripture and even today were just guys and gals with normal jobs. Not any sort of religious elite. And I hear this all the time, that people get right with God and they get passionate about the gospel. And they say, I'm going to quit my job and go into ministry full time. And there is a place for that. There's a special calling for that. But I tell them, don't quit. You're a minister of reconciliation right where you are. You have an incredible platform You might not have a special title, but God has planted you there as a minister of reconciliation to bring light into darkness, to love those people around you well, to point them to Jesus. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's this cupbearer. So not only is he a normal dude that's working this job, but he's really good at it. It's evidence that he's trusted, a man of integrity, a man of character, He wouldn't have been able to accomplish God's mission if he had not been faithful in the small things leading up to this point where we get an introduction to him. He's doing daily life routine with integrity. And I tell this to us, remind us all the time, Christians should be the best employees. We should be the hardest working. We should be the most truthful, the most, uh, have the most integrity, the most productive. Why? Because we don't work for our boss. We work for Jesus Christ, right? The other thing we see, he's a cupbearer. No formal training. We all see he's a journaler. Most of Nehemiah is Nehemiah's journals. And this is cool and has uh, relevance to us 
because we get to see inside the heart of Nehemiah his fears and concerns, his victories and triumphs, all of that. Like he's narrating this story to us. It's really kind of neat. And we don't have time to get through all of this. I've told many of you, um, when we started the church, Nehemiah was like our second book that we preached through. And we took better part of a year to preach through, you know, 13 or so chapters. Um, and we were, we were building that wall for a long time. So for you, we're going to build the wall for the next 30 minutes. Um, and you'll have to read the rest of it for yourself. It is an incredible, is a credible account of how God used a man in a mighty way. The first I want to see, I'm going to give you just four principles that God uses to change us and change the places that we inhabit. Four principles we see in Nehemiah 1 and 2. There's probably 10 of these total. If you keep reading through the book, we're only going to get to four today. And the first is listening. Jump in with me in uh, in verse 2. Nehemiah's friends had come to him. We'll jump in the middle of the verse. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile, and, con- and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. And soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, Nehemiah is going to be the third person that is going to help restore the city of Jerusalem. hundred years or so before this, Zerubbabel went with a group of people and re-inhabited the city. And then Ezra went. And you can see uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all concerning the same time in that same uh, Persian empire. Ezra tried to rebuild the walls. He ended up rebuilding the temple, but not the walls. And it said that the temple was like just makeshift. Like if a tornado hit your house and you were able to patch it up enough before the contractors could get there. That's what the temple looked like. It was so bad that the people who had helped to rebuild the temple to make it functional after it was built sat outside of the temple and wept. Because they heard the stories of of the splendor of Solomon's temple. But the city cannot get any footing. It is still open uh, to attack. Its walls are torn down. Its gates here, it says, are burned by fire. And the news of this condition of the city reaches Nehemiah. And he hears it in a different light. Have you ever read the word of God and read something in a different light? Maybe in your grief or your struggle or your temptation and you read God's word and it spoke to you. Like he himself was audibly speaking to you. And this is what happened to Nehemiah. The walls of the city had been torn down 150 years. And it had been no real burden to Nehemiah. Kind of out of sight, out of mind. Until verse 4, when we see Nehemiah with an incredible burden for the cities, weeping and mourning. This is not a tear you shed in the movie theater. This is real mourning. And it lasted for months. Why the burden now? It would be like you getting news that one of your ancestors died in the Civil War. And you would have been like, okay, that, okay. This is the kind of news that Nehemiah is getting now. And it had been factual before, but now it touched his heart in a different way. Why does it affect him? Why the complete emotional and spiritual breakdown? And here's why I think it is. 
Because the Holy Spirit at that moment gave Nehemiah the heart of Jesus. Revelation from God was followed by compassion for the people. I don't believe Nehemiah received any new information. I do believe he received the same information but with a softer heart. It was accompanied by a new perspective. The Holy Spirit opened Nehemiah's heart to have the heart of Jesus, to have the heart of Jesus for that city. And some of you say, no, 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 no. Nehemiah is not about Jesus. But Jesus is the God of the Bible, right? And Nehemiah was waiting for Jesus, and we're waiting for Jesus to come again. And I believe that Jesus would later weep for that same city of Jerusalem. So here Nehemiah is weeping for the city of Jerusalem, and I believe he's got, he's seeing with the eyes of Jesus. He is feeling with the eyes of Jesus. And this is important to us because we're in a city that's spiritually bankrupt, that's destroyed and confused. Just like the city of Jerusalem was in that day, but you and I, if we're Christians, we have this inclination, if we're honest, to not be troubled by all the trouble because it's all we've ever known. So it seems so normal to us, people claiming to be Christians but living with no real change in their life, others openly defiant against God. And in that day, the walls had been broken for 141 years. It just seems so normal, and it just seems like this is the way it's always going to be. Several generations had come and gone. That's all the people had known. And what can happen to you and me to you and I, as we become so accustomed to the brokenness and spiritual bankruptcy and devastation of our city, of our country, of our world, that we no longer share Jesus' heart for it. It doesn't break us. It doesn't bother us. How many of you woke up this morning with a heaviness and a burden for the lostness of your actual neighbors, your coworkers, the leaders of our city, Truth is, if we're honest again, most of us don't really care anymore. We don't have the heart of Jesus. Look at this picture of the heart of Jesus in Matthew 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd he had compassion this is the strongest word in scripture for this it it literally is translated the bowels like have you ever got this knot in your stomach when you got bad news when you saw something happen and it just wrecked you you didn't want to eat I mean who can eat at a time like this this is what Jesus is feeling He had this compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the harvest. The weeping leads to prayer. This is the second point, listening and praying. Look at all these lost people, Jesus says, you guys better go pray. Like sheep without a shepherd. And he doesn't say, okay, now here we go, ready, set, go, go evangelize. Ready, set, go, go plant churches right now. He says, no, what I want you to do is I want you to go and pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the field. Look at these broken walls. Nehemiah, you better pray. 
Jesus on the Mount of Ascension. You remember that? He gives the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and baptize. But wait, but first, I want you to get on your face. And I want you to wait on the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to come. Because the only way that you're going to push back the kingdom of darkness is through prayer. It's the only way. We have to channel our burden or our angst into prayer. A lot of us see that the world is broken and we're angry about it. A lot of us see the world is broken and maybe we're jaded by it. Or the world is broken and we're apathetic about it. But this is not the way, friends as children of the king of king, that we're supposed to respond. I get worried that we are so upset about so many things, but our lives, instead of doing anything about it, our our lives are numbed out and filled with trivialities. Nehemiah's burden turned to prayer. Are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Is there a check in your spirit that something's broken in the world? About the foster kids in our city? We got enough Christians in churches this morning. There should be no foster kids. We should have adopted them all. About the poverty in our city? About the homelessness in our city? Have we not been giving, given above and beyond all that we have? Unless they're not even read the words of Jesus. If you have two of something, give one of them away. But see, it just doesn't break our heart. We don't have the heart of Jesus. If we had the heart of Jesus and something broke our heart, the racial racial tension in our city, something broke our heart, the percentage of abortion, something broke our heart. We had the heart of Jesus and then we begin to galvanize, turn that angst, turn that anger of the brokenness of the world and where Satan seems to be winning, that we would turn that anger as a righteous anger into prayer and say, God, this is too big for me. There's no way little old me is going to walk into this thing and solve the racial tension or fix the poverty problem or the homelessness. There's no way. Or the, or the abortion crisis. There's, there's no way. Or, or the division in our, in, in our cities, there's, in our country. There's, there's no way little old me is going to do that. But big old God can do that. And so immediately, Nehemiah turns this burden into prayer. And it's incredible. We're going to read this prayer just real quickly. I wish we had time to even dive into this. So much of the, uh, the, the song we just sang, the I will extol thee, are, are words even from this prayer. Nehemiah is going to borrow some of this from the Psalms. <clears throat> I love this about Nehemiah, that he goes directly to prayer. He doesn't run out and just do something haphazardly. He doesn't start a campaign to raise money. He doesn't work himself into a frenzy. He really prayerfully considers what God would have him do. This is a man who prays. 10 or 11 times in the book of Nehemiah, we see him pray all kinds of prayer through this book. This is his first and most lengthy prayer. He says in verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Friends, can I ask you something? When's the last time you wept over something that didn't immediately concern you? Not your kids. Not your financial crisis. When's the last time you wept for something for someone else? From brokenness somewhere else. When's the last time you wept over it? Tell me what you cry about, and I'll tell you what's important to you. Listen to the prayer he prays in verse 5. And I said, 
Again, remember, this is his journal. I love this. You ever write down your prayers? Oh, Lord God of heaven, how great and awesome, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who keep him and keep his command, love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. He includes himself in this. Look at this repentance, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments or the statutes or the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, Nehemiah prays, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight and fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of man, in the sight of this man. What an incredibly bold prayer. You, you, know, you know any of those friends that can really pray, mostly from the Pentecostal tradition, when they start their prayer, oh, God, you said, like you were reminded, God, you said, you, you said it. I read it. You said it. Claiming the promises of God. Now, this is not like your kids who remind you that you, you promised them if they made good grades, you'd take them to Great Wolf Lodge. Um, that's happened in my house. This is not that kind of thing. God loves to hear his covenants and his promises that he made to us come from our heart through our lips back to him. He loves it. He delights in it. He wants us to claim the promises of God. And this is what Nehemiah is doing. God, you said this. He's simply praying the promises of God. We've got so many incredible examples of this in Scripture. We don't have time to go through them. But this is how Nehemiah approaches the throne of grace. And he's burdened and he's weeping and he's praying. And when you take it to God in prayer, it's not just that God's going to do the thing that you're asking him to do. Prayer mostly is about changing us. He changes us. He gives us his heart. Prayer is more about changing us than changing the situation. And he prays, and this is just not a one-time prayer. He prays for 100 days. It says in verse 4, he prayed for days. In chapter 2 and verse 1, four months later, it gives us the month. He's, it's the third thing. We're listening, we're praying, and then we're waiting. Friends, do you know that God's timing is perfect? He's simply waiting on God's timing. I'm sure the burden and the praying, I mean, how long do we, do, are we burdened in praying? For a week? I mean, an hour? For 100 days, for almost four months, he is praying and fasting and begging the Lord and reminding the Lord of his promises. He's sitting in it, asking the Lord. He's waiting on the Lord. And I'm sure this is a helpful reminder to all of us. Friends, learn to wait on the Lord. Why does God ask us to wait? Why does he delay when he could act? Why does he allow things when he could step in and prevent them? 
Waiting is possibly the hardest thing for the Christian to do. Because remember, this has been the theme of all the above and beyond sermons. What is he really trying to get you to do? He's trying to get you to trust him. And you learn to trust him by trusting in him and improving himself faithful. Waiting is not passivity. Like if I ask a fellow who's lost a job, how's the job hunt going? He's like, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. No, that's foolishness. Waiting is I've done everything that I know how to do, but the door has not been opened. And so I'm still doing what I know to do, but I'm waiting on the Lord. I've worked and now I rest. It's this picture of Sabbath. I think, I think the waiting, God does two things for us in the waiting. One, he reminds us that we aren't God. Have you ever noticed that God acts so differently than we think he should? Different timing, always, always the different timing. Different methods, just altogether different. He's sending the Israelites into Jericho to claim a promised piece of land. And Jericho's walls are high and they've got a reputation for being some pretty bad dudes in there. And he doesn't give them battle strategy. What he says, here I want you to do, I want you to do some marching and I want you to blow a horn. You're like, Jesus, the, the horn's not going to do anything, man. Those walls. And they obey him. And what happens? The walls come down. And God is proven mighty on their behalf. So many of this. It just it makes no sense. You think about Gideon. He's like, wait, Gideon, you got way too many soldiers, bro. You got to get rid of those soldiers. Oh, and, you know, put those knives and stuff down, man. All you need is a lantern and a horn. Man, God's in the horns. We should get horns. We should, we should have people blowing the horns in here. People think we're really crazy, right? Bring the big shafar. I might be into it. Waiting reminds us that we aren't God. Think of 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat. You remember this story? Man, this would be a phenomenal sermon just in and of itself. I read it this week and... Several enemies are, 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 against, are against the nation of Judah. And they're closing in, and there's no way they're going to be able to win. And it says that the entire country, gathers together in verse 13. I don't think I have all this on the screen. The entire country of Judah stood before the Lord. I love this. With their little ones. They brought their little kids and their wives and their children. They're waiting on the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, Benaniah, and a, a couple other parents, we could keep going. The Spirit of the Lord came and spoke, and he said, this is one of the, these are some of the worship leaders from the lineage of Asaph. And he said, listen, all Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, don't be afraid and don't be dismayed <clears throat> at this great horde. He called them this great horde. That's like so many, you couldn't even count them. That's how many soldiers are coming against them. For the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. Verse 17, and you will need not fight this battle, but stand firm and hold your position and see salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Okay, I got that. I'm still sharpening my swords that night for sure. The way that God does things, when we wait on him, it reminds us that we are God. And two, it redirects our worship. It directs it from our own strength and strategy to God's power in his favor. In verse 21 of that same passage, 2 Chronicles 20, I think I do have this one. And when they had taken the counsel uh, with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Can you imagine being that worship leader and you got your little Martin guitar and you're like, okay, here's where we need you, right on the front lines. You're actually going to go in front of the army. This plan makes no sense except it's exactly what God asked them to do. And as soon as they began singing, these armies started fighting each other. And no one got away. When they came up over the hill, there was no army alive. And a matter of fact, there was so much things to take from that battlefield of gold and uh, the spoils of the battle that it took them three days to pick it all up. When we wait on the Lord, he redirects our worship. Now, we can go in front of the Lord and not be in his timing, and we can take things in our own hands like Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar, like Adam and Eve did in the garden. We could do that. We could trust ourselves more than we trust the timing of God. But friends, I encourage you to trust the Lord, to wait on the Lord. We have some incredible promises from God, the things that he does while we wait. While we wait, he hears our prayer. Psalms 40 verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and he heard my cry. As we wait, he acts on our behalf. Psalm 64, 4, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. When we wait on God, he gives us strength. Isaiah 40, verse 31, but they who wait in the Lord shall renew their strength. You know this verse, right? And they shall mount up with wings like eagles and run and not be weary of walking, not faint. Waiting is much more a posture of our hearts than it is a reference to time. We can't hurry the plan of God. This is what God's doing. It's funny that Nehemiah had no idea that he, Nehemiah, would be the main answer to the prayer after the burden. See, a lot of times, I guess this is a warning, be careful what you pray because you might be the one God sends. You ever pray that? God, this world is so broken. Help. And he says, you. God, this, this, this homelessness is just, is just out of control. God, help. And he taps you on the shoulder and said, I want you to go. I want you to rearrange your life to be my hands. God, <laughs> New Orleans is so lost. I want to send you. God, how is it possible that the world, that there's, millions and millions and millions of people who've never heard the gospel. And he said, I'm sending you. He listened and he prayed and he waited and then he acted. Nehemiah text takes a step of faith. I love and <clears throat> to just catch you up on the story because we don't have time to preach the whole thing. Nehemiah goes before the king and he's a little sad because he's been weeping and fasting for four months. If I don't eat for four months, I get pretty sad too. And he's, he's before the king, and the king's like, what's wrong, Nehemiah? And he's like, I mean, how can I be joyous? The, the walls of the city that I come from in Jerusalem are broken. This is incredible. <clears throat> this king didn't like Jerusalem. He had already been asked a couple of times to help restore the city, and it didn't, <clears throat> it didn't work. And so when Nehemiah brings it up in front of the king, he risks a lot in this step of obedience. He heard from God. He risks obeying. 
And he stands before the king, and the king says, okay, uh, Nehemiah, what do you need? And Nehemiah, <laughs> Nehemiah immediately uh, spit out everything he needed. I need 438 trees from the king's forest. I need passage to the land. I need riches and jewels. I need you to send workers and helpers. I need you to provide animals for me to get there, just like he, he, had, the, he had the list. Oh, and I need like a decade off so I can go do this. He asked big things of God, Nehemiah did, and he asked big things of the king. He took a step of faith. He risked obeying God. And after one heck of a journey, he sees accomplished what he only dreamed about. There's this picture, I think it's in 12 or 13 of Nehemiah, where they get it done and all the walls are there. And then it's time to worship. And they gather together in that city that is now protected from its enemies. Oh, and there's so much, I mean, so much that he goes through of, uh, against the enemies and against the, even, even traitors on the inside. And I mean, there's so, there's so much difficulty and spiritual warfare that's going on here. But at the end, they get it done. He tells everybody, I love his strategy too. He says, here's how we're going to build this thing. Everybody repair the wall in front of your house. And so they go out there and they start working and Nehemiah's encouraging them. There's this picture too, I think it's in chapter 4, where they've got a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. It's this really cool picture. It's like so bad. Like this guy's just like hanging from the wall working to put it up and he's fighting off the enemy with the sword. I just think, I just love that. But they get there, they get it all done. They stand in there. Ezra gets up with the word of God. And the people hear the word of God read to them, read over them. It's this incredible picture. All because one man named Nehemiah listened to the voice of God. And he spent time bathing this idea in prayer. And he waited on the right timing and he took a step of faith. Here's what's so significant about that. Nowhere in Nehemiah is there this verbal command by God recorded. No handwriting on the wall. No mysterious appearance of Elijah in the night. He says there in verse 12 where we started in chapter 2 that God had put it in my heart. Friends, I believe wholeheartedly that every follower of Jesus, God is working in your heart right now to put something in your heart. He's radically called you in. He's given you identity your beloved son or daughter, you're clothed with the glory from, from on high, you're entrusted with spiritual gifts, you're an heir of the kingdom, you're a son of the king of kings. And now he's invited you to participate in this mission with him of pushing back the kingdom of darkness and expanding the kingdom of light. But in order to do this, this is going to require a radical reorientation of our priorities the mission God called us to is not a slight adjustment in our lifestyle. It's a whole new way of looking at the world. In Romans 9, Paul says that he was in anguish every day until he saw the world the way Nehemiah saw his. Do you see the world that way? That you're in anguish every day? I know you say you believe the gospel. Do you really believe it? Does the urgency that dominates your lifestyle demonstrate that you really believe it? I know your mouth says that you believe the gospel, but what do your priorities say? What does your calendar say? What does your lifestyle say? What does your giving say? Does it reflect that you are all in on the mission of God and following him? Covenant, the urgency of this mission demands that we not huddle up in this conclave and just sing all the God songs every week and watch the world go to hell around us. Jesus shed his blood and offered us the power of his spirit so that we could make a difference here and now. 
that we could reverse the tide, that we could see the salvation of Jesus extend onto our college campuses, into our places of business, into our school, into our neighborhoods, in our homes, around the world, in the darkest places. Let me close this way, friends. Are you listening? I mean, I mean, are you really listening? Would you pray that prayer today? God, God, what do you want me to do? God, help me have your heart. What burden is he putting on your heart? It's not a burden for you to carry. He's just letting you in on what breaks his heart and empowering you to be a part of the solution. What brokenness in our world is he calling you into? It is clear that God sometimes puts into his people's hearts a burning ambition or a dream or a holy discontent that serves as his guidance for something that he wants to do. Maybe it's single moms. Maybe it's teenagers. Next week, as we even talked about, you're going to meet Shane Booker. And I don't want to oversell him because I've never heard him preach. But he's coming in to minister to our students. And let me tell you, if he just talks about the burden on his heart for the Lower Ninth Ward, it's enough. We went to this Lower Ninth Ward. Well, first they get there and they says, hey, listen, I just want to be aware that carjacking in New Orleans is up 600%. So be real careful. I mean, it was enough that it scared us all pretty good. I made, the gu- I made sure the gun was loaded. I just, it's a, that's, that, that's my sword. I got, the, I got the gun and the Bible. All right, God, which one do I need to use? One of the ladies that worked for Stephen's church, she says, you know, one of the things that we've had to do is we've had to get these, uh, these tiles or these Apple tags and actually put them on the car seats of our kids because they're stealing cars at such an alarming rate. They'll take off with your kid in the back, and then they'll just take your kid out and at the next light set it on the median for you to hopefully find. And I'm like, these dudes are crazy for planting a church in this city. And that was in the Upper Ninth Ward. That's the nice area. Then you go over the bayou to the lower ninth, and it is like out of the scene in some movie. Like there's no restaurants in, 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 the, in the whole place. The, even the family dollar couldn't make it there. That's what I was like, okay, this is, this is some serious stuff over here. The family dollar can't make it. And Shane is weeping over that city. And he said, I want you to come meet some of my friends. And make sure when you get out of your car, you lock it. <laughs> Okay, okay, got it. And we met these pastors. We prayed with them over their city. They lived there. They're from there. And I drove away in disbelief, thinking, God, this is one of those things that we can't strategize our way out of. God, you're going to have to do it. God gave him such a heart for that lower ninth ward. We want to partner with him whatever way we can. Are you listening? Are you praying? Maybe you've got the burden. The next step is just to pray. Many of you know the call. You've been called to ministry. You've been called as ministers of reconciliation. We've all done that. We've all had that. Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. That's a call in all of our life. We've got that call. But there's, sometimes there's even a greater burden that has been placed on your heart, and it's for, it's, it's for something else. It's for, it's, it's, it's for the foster kids or uh, the single, it's for something else. And God's placed that burden there. 
It's for the mothers of preschools. It's for, it's for those people who, who are walking through grief. It's whatever the burden, God's already placed it there. You know it. And now it's time for you to really take a step, start bathing that thing in prayer. God, I don't know what you're going to do with this. And little old me and that big old, that big old giant and scary thing, I don't know what I could do. But I'm, I'm laying my yes on the table. And whatever you want to do with it, I'm willing to follow you. Are you listening? Are you praying? Are you waiting? Maybe you're waiting, waiting for the right moment. Nehemiah, again, waited 100 days before he even brought it up to the king. Don't get discouraged in the waiting. God's in the waiting, friends. Some of you are waiting on a spouse. Some of you are waiting for, to get pregnant. Some of you are waiting for a wayward kid to come home. Some of you are praying for lost family members. Don't get discouraged in the waiting. God's timing is perfect. You're not going to hurry his hand. Wait on him and be encouraged while you wait. Some of you, you know the time is right and your next step is the acting. You got to get out of the boat. You got to take a step on the water. You got to do something. It's time to do it. And you know, maybe, maybe that doing it is you taking your little connection card and you just writing the word yes on it. That's you laying your yes on the table today. I don't have to know what it is. Nobody else might know it. You know what it is. And maybe you're just laying the yes down and saying, God, when your timing's right, I'm, I'm ready to go. Maybe you know that timing's right now and you know what the next step is. It'd be cool for you to just write on your card whatever it is, whatever it is. One word, two words. Again, I don't have to know what it is. I'm just going to take these things and we're going to pray down heaven over these things tomorrow when we get in staff meeting. God, these are the answers of your people who are moved by your spirit and they're willing to take a step to risk it, to follow you. Let me finish with this quote by Thomas Kelly. I love this. Begin where you are. Obey now. Use what little obedience you're capable of, even if it be like a grain of a mustard seed. Begin where you are. Live in this present moment, this present hour, as you sit in your seat with great submission and openness towards him. Begin where you are. Friends, we've been given so much through the work of Jesus. Our sins forgiven, adopted into his family, and he's inviting you now to take a step of faith. There's some of you in this room, you've, you don't even know anything what I'm talking about. You're on the other side of this thing. You're on the outside looking in. Maybe you came in today kicking the tires a little bit, saying, I wonder what this Jesus thing is all about. I beg you on behalf of God to take a step of faith today to trust him, to put your cards in the center of, all your chips in the center of the table. Some of you, that step of faith is going to be baptism. We're baptizing next week. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Let me pray for you. We're not doing communion today. I'm just going to give you some time right there at your seat. And I just want you to pray that prayer. God, what would you have me do? I've put my yes on the table. God, there's no way that we can do this without you. You remind us in John 15 that our need is not partial, it's total. 
Without me, you say that we can do nothing. So God, we're not trying to go ahead of you. And we're certainly not trying to go without you. Jesus, would you give me your heart for the lost? For the lost in my neighborhood? Would you give me your heart? Would you wake me up with tears for the brokenness around me? Would you make me so uncomfortable in my comfortable little life? Lord, I want to live a life of consequence. I want to get to the end and see a dream realized, people coming to faith and churches being planted and injustices being righted. God, would you work in my heart? Would you work in the hearts of these people in Covenant Church? Lord, you know my heart. If we never built a building, I'm going to be okay. I want to follow you. Lord, I'm far more concerned with this faith family moving to the guidance of your word than I, than I am our, our dreams. Would you speak to us, though, this morning? For those who aren't part of your family in here, I pray they would have the faith, the courage, the boldness today to take a step of faith and trust you in your saving work on the cross. For those that have wandered away in this room and they're in the desert, Lord, I pray they would take a step back to you. God, do what you need to in us. Birth in us even today as we pray a burden. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We're going to sing. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. I just want you to talk to God.